so as we said before, you um, I originally asked for your help with some philanthropy history research. Um, you generally thought, right, the boring topic. And in particular, right, I remember you were saying that there would be no hypothesis. Right, that it's, yeah. it's just going to be a list of dates and, right. No, I think I think the boring part. Uh, I'm like you, you, you know, I told you that. I mean, Oliver Zund's book is very boring, but it's also very helpful in a way in that it's about administrative history. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if you're, you or your listeners understand that, but it's about bureaucrats making decisions. It's about conflicts that, that come eventually into the federal and state legislatures and they get discussed and compromised. Well, that process is incredibly tedious. Yes. And, 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 uh, in fact, I do have, a, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, that's what you just said. There's a section from Zunz that is a good example of what you just said. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs here. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. I think most people would be completely uninterested in this. Um, but I'm not, you and I are not right. most people. And I do actually think probably anybody listening to this is probably going to find what I'm about to read here fascinating. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff going on in these two paragraphs. So um, maybe we may, we'll talk about it for a little bit. Uh, so uh, most charity workers were well aware of the pauperizing tendencies of almsgiving even as they disagreed with the unalloyed social Darwinism that Carnegie indulged in his pronouncements. From the Charity Organization Society's office in New York City, its tough-minded founder, Josephine Shaw Lowell. Do you know who that is? No. No. She ran the um, Charity Organization Society office in New York City. Anyway, she was designing a so-called scientific system for the coordination of charities to prevent the duplication of aid to New York City's poor while at the same time taking a stand against abuses perpetrated by capitalists against workers in the workplace. It was important to her to do both, but when a downturn in the economy or personal misfortune led immigrants to seek alms, they expressed their distrust of the charity system by being selective takers whenever they could. Many immigrants sought welfare in their own ethnic associations of mutual help, more often than in Protestant charitable institutions, which they perceived to be instruments of assimilation and social control. Uh, Southern blacks knew that applications for help only added justification for the disenfranchisement. The rich, however, endorsed Lowell's efficiency drive because it was consistent with their own desire for a shield from the solicitors. Big givers were daily besieged by individual appeals for help, which they did not have time to read, let alone answer. Baptist minister Frederick Gates, who enjoyed John D. Rockefeller Sr. to give his money away, Uh, or it will crush you and your children and your children's children. (laughs) He testified that the elder Rockefeller was hounded like a wild animal by supplicants. Uh, um, The widow, Russell Sage, received 20,000 letters asking for money within six months of her announcement that she would turn her late husband's fortune over to charitable causes, pursued doggedly by supplicants, um, but determined to tackle larger social problems, Philanthropists turned to reformers in academic, professional, and religious circles. If big money philanthropy were to be effective, individual cases had to be somehow aggregated and a few general principles of giving defined. Mm-hmm. So this is, um, this is a, a conversation from about 100 years ago. Well, okay, my response to that is, first of all, you're right. It's uh, sort of rich in issues. two paragraphs. But yeah. it's rich in issues that you can talk about. I mean, I think the, the first thing is you have to look at population growth. And that is that, you know, if you're talking about philanthropy in, in the 18th and early 19th century, you're talking about 
it in a world of small towns and villages, small churches, and you're dealing with relatively small numbers. What you've done now is you've skipped, and I was talking to you about this last night, that there's a line somewhere. I mean, people put it at various places. Uh, 1880, 1893, uh, I think it was Virginia Woolf put it on a Wednesday in 1912 when we stopped being pre-modern and we become modern. The defining characteristic of modern is the mass society. And what you're talking about there where all these letters start flowing in and the, there's, the number of the poor is so huge that you, you, you come up with an administrative problem. And that is, you no. have, and the other thing you have, and you have to remember that wasn't really indicated in that uh, paragraphs, was that people like Sage and Rockefeller and Ford had amassed wealth far beyond anything that had uh, been amassed prior to, say, 1880 or 1870. And that is somewhat what we're the, the due to the prosperity we were talking about earlier. Some of these folks did make their money off of not great stuff, right. not necessarily. Um, oppression of other peoples, but in, um, right there, perhaps by um, exploitation of the Earth's natural resources or, yep. uh, or exploitation of the workers. I thought it was very interesting that she was simultaneously trying to, like, trying to prevent uh, right, duplication of aid to the poor, right. Right, which is what I, I interpreted to mean right. the same poor getting too, multi, raising too much money, basically, yeah. um, but at the same time protecting them from being abused in the right. factories and stuff. Well, this, uh, I mean, this becomes, uh, you know, there's a, some sort of large, massive issues here uh, of economic growth, uh, of wealth in, in a period when, uh, by everybody's estimation, uh, economic growth was just uh, almost unmeasurably large. And a lot of it has to do with technology. I mean, you have, just think of the things you have during this period. You have the telephone. Uh, the internal combustion engine, uh, uh, the electrification of the country, you know. I mean, people went from oil lamps to, you know, lights in, in, a, in, in a couple of generations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, uh, the people who benefited from that, the, the incredibly wealthy, I mean, Rockefeller would be one and Carnegie would be another. Uh, Ford would be another. The, the automobile I mean, this is just unbelievable. The radio, movies, uh, all of this began to, uh, you know, uh, transform the landscape. And one of the things I tried to tell you last night was that pre-modern wealth philanthropy and being poor was a much, much different thing in 1820 mm. than it was in 1920. I mean, it was, it was unbelievably different. Uh, one was the numbers were just larger. The population had grown to a point where you may have had the same percentage of the poor, but that percentage was from a much, much larger number. And you had the same elite uh, wealthy, but they were much more uh, spectacular. Uh, they were making money off of unbelievable transitions that were that just spewed money. Uh, Carnegie, for example, is the, probably the best example. And that is steel, which was a product that could be used in all of these transitions. Farm machinery, automobiles, bridges, everything needed steel. The trans, uh, the expansion of the railroad mm -hmm. from the East Coast to the West Coast, and, and so on. And people who made money off the railroads. Uh, and they just, 
began to pile up. And this was all prior to the income tax, which came in in, what, 1917. And if I'm wrong, I believe you're right. Um, And and that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with philanthropy changes from this sort of small gauge, very Christian, uh, very ethnic uh, uh, practice in in the society uh, to something by 1920 or 1930, you just, you can't even talk about it the same way. It's a completely different deal.